Hey, everybody. How's it going? This is Theology in the Dirt. We appreciate you listening. And every time I hear Earth, Wind, and Fire, I just want to sing. And if you can see me right now, I'm not chair dancing, but I sometimes I'm chair dancing to Earth, Wind, and Fire. It's good to have you guys listening in. It's been a while since we've recorded. Been a lot of traveling, a lot of things going on. And today we have a special guest in the studios with us today. And his name is Chris Hamilton. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Glad to have you here today, my friend. Good to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, today uh, we are in our world headquarters of Restoration Rome Global Impact here in Rome, Georgia, where we do foster and adoptive care. And we want to invite you to check out our website, restorationrome.org, if you want to learn how you can be per- a participant in this work in solving the foster and adoption care crisis in the state of Georgia, uh, in our region, and around the world. And so I invite you to go check that out. You can give, you can volunteer, all kinds of good things available for you there. And so Theology and Dirt is brought to you by Global Impact Restoration Rome. And, uh, and Theology and Dirt exists to help us think through the issues of our day so that we can live uh, and apply the gospel of the kingdom in our homes, our city, and our world. And so we get down in the dirt and roll around in some issues. And so we're going to do that today. When we get to our main topic in just a few moments on the issue of a sacred secular divide, is that real? Is it not real? Why do we use that language? We're going to talk about that. But before we do, we are going to come this morning with something very important. That music lets us know that it's time for our sports hot take. And so we're in the middle of a hot summer, baseball season, football season's around the corner. And so it's time for our sports hot take. So, Chris, let us know what you got this morning. I can't believe you're letting me go first for this. Maybe it's to the clean la- out things at the end. Yeah, the last time you gave us a sports hot take, we had some serious crickets in the house because it was uh, well, it was pretty maybe, bad. Maybe part of it, I didn't know what a sports hot take was before I started talking. That's where I've got my into the most trouble you need to do a little more sports talk yeah. radio and yeah never yeah. mind i'm gonna let you go tell All me right. what you think so um one the braves are killing it killing it that's awesome uh very very exciting always love the braves growing up going to their games and also this is not only coming off of the championship year but then um just these last what out of 16 games we've won 14 or 17 games, 15, something like that. Yeah. There's a lot of games. A lot of games. Huge streak. So um, did you read the article uh, where Brian where Brian Snicker uh, went up to, like he, he called this team meeting, like closed-door okay. team meeting. And So Snick called this meeting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so because, you know, the season didn't start off very good, which everyone was like, well, that's how we did last year. But coming off of the win, you'd think maybe we're doing a little bit better. Right. So he called this meeting with the whole team, and he looks at them, and he instead of, you know, ragging on them and getting all up in their face about, you know, you guys are really slacking, all this stuff, he just gives a simple message of relax. Mm. Like, I know there's a lot of, like, fame pointing in your direction right now, the spotlight's on you, all of that. Like, just relax. Like, you love baseball, play baseball. And so mm. all of this happens. Now I'm thinking about my hot take. Here it is. So the Cleveland Browns. My hot take is that they're going to win it all this year. Cleveland Browns. Cleveland Browns. All right, my first question is, how do you go from Snitz 
team meeting to the Browns are going to win it all. I'm, I'm looking for so, the connection here. So the Browns. Okay. The only reason I care any about them is because of Nick Chubb, yes. good old Georgia boy. That's right. Um, hometown guy, close to Rome, all of that. So I want to see this happen on right. his behalf. But but I'm also thinking that this could all happen under the one condition that Kevin Stefanski, or however you say his name, right. sits down with them like Snicker did. Got you. Just tells them to relax. Because they're receiving a lot of publicity too, but it's kind of the opposite end. It's true. So they, just a few things, like one, all the stuff with Watson and like all that's going on there. Right. Just trying to navigate all of that. You've also got Baker Mayfield, who maybe wasn't a crowd favorite coming into the NFL. Right. Um, just his bur- big personality and all. And then it's debatable, but they're probably one of the worst teams this century. So it's not a lot of good publicity or, right. you know, notice in the public. Right. So I'm thinking maybe they just need one little talking to. One talking to. Yeah. I like and this it. idea of like just relax. Just relax. relax. You're professionals, so they mm. say. So mm-hmm. I don't know. That's I th- good. I think if they do, as Snickers said, and relax, then uh I think they got it in the bag. That'd be awesome. I'd like to see there's several uh Georgia kids on that yeah. Browns team that I would like to see do well. And not just uh University of Georgia, I mean from the state of Georgia. Georgia produces uh, they're one of the top producers of football players in the entire country. Um, probably because we worship that sport around here. A little bit. Uh, I'm not going to say whether or not I'm a participant in said worship. I just know the hearts of Georgians, and we love the sport of football. So, yeah, that would be awesome to see. All right, here's – I got a sports hot take. This may generate some emails, um, but uh, – I had I had a several in mind when you brought up the Browns, uh, Deshaun Watson, uh, and I've brought this up before. I'm going to say it again. Uh, being the dad of sons uh, and seeing that a lot of these ladies in the Deshaun Watson trial have settled for a financial settlement, yeah. um, I think when it comes to young men in sports, they are guilty until proven innocent, not innocent until proven guilty. There's time and time again – uh, it's been proven that there are opportunities for ladies to make bank at the expense of a young man's reputation. Yeah. And all it takes is an accusation. And because there have been men who have taken advantage and done wrong mm-hmm. and they should be punished, should be buried under the jail. Yeah. All right. So I want to be clear. They should be buried under the jail. But in a world of opportunity, all it takes now is for a young man to be accused, whether he did anything wrong, see Brian Banks and his organization called Exonerate. This girl accused him of rape. He was convicted, did 10 years in prison, gets out of prison. As soon as he's out of prison, did his time, this girl contacts him and said she wants to meet him. He calls his attorney. His attorney says, this is strange. Let's wear a wire. Go meet her. So they wire him. He meets her. She says she made it all up. They get it all on tape. And this kid was going pro, University of Southern California. Yeah. Um, and my question is, how did he get convicted when he didn't do it? Yeah. That, that's a great question. But he got convicted. We're, we're supposed to have a legal system where you're innocent until proven guilty, and the burden of proof is on the prosecution. And somehow he got proven guilty, and he didn't do it. Yeah. Marcus Dixon, 
And I know people have mixed feelings about Marcus, but the truth of the matter is all it takes is an accusation of a young man and you ruin his life. So the Falcons gave this kid, Brian Banks, an opportunity to come in and earn a spot, but he had 10 years in prison. He made the practice squad first year and just physically he was done and didn't have the ability to, to catch up with his career. So he started a foundation called Exonerate to help wrongly convicted young men. And so I'm not saying Deshaun Watson's innocent, but I think it's interesting when they all start settling for finances I mean, how bad do you really want? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. But I just I just know that as soon as all that came out, Deshaun Watson's career was put on hold, mm-hmm. and there was no proof. In fact, a grand jury refused to indict him yeah. because there wasn't enough evidence to prove anything. But yet he's settling out of court, and I don't know. All that to say, um, here's my sports hot take, young men. Any young man listening to this who's in sports or doing anything, watch yourself. Be home before the sun goes down. Go to sleep. Play your Xbox. Read your Bible. Go to sleep. Get up. Go to workouts. Go eat. Say no to all girls until you have a job and are married. And she loves you for you, not because you can make her money. And do not let yourself be accused because in the court of public opinion, you can never, ever win when it comes to that issue. So there's my sports hot take today. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to hate me, send me an email at theologyinthedirt at gmail.com and we can, we can respond to your email. Been getting a few emails of late. We've been out for a while and, uh, and that's okay. And so we're, we've been uh, traveling, a lot of things going on, but there's lots of podcasts and you can go listen to our stuff in the background and the, in the previous months and years and get caught up. But that does it for our sports hot take. And now, It's time for overtime. Overtime is where we talk about some leftover theological issues or sermon content or things we've been studying or learning. And so, Chris, I'm going to give you the privilege to go first. Now, you said you had a good one. You said you had a good one, but at the same time, you had forgotten it on your drive because I was late. I was late. I caught up in a conversation, it. and I was late this morning showing up. So you've forgotten your overtime. Do you remember it? I think I think I recall my overtime now. Got you. So I've been in a lot of discussion recently. Nothing heated or anything. Just kind of it's come up multiple times, and we haven't addressed it, you know, particularly. But the idea of the law. And, you know, we've we've kind of split it into the moral, civil, and um, ceremonial law, right? Right. You talk about the law of the Old Testament, yes, right? Yes, the law okay. of the Old Testament. Right. Um, and so kind of just looking at that and how that applies to the Christian life because the Bible doesn't really make any distinction of those three like it doesn't say like we've kind of gone in and you know and maybe like a systematic theology or a theology of that looked at that and been like okay well we see these three sections of the law these three different types of laws and all of that yeah the bible um, doesn't actively with a subheading yeah. say here's your civil law here's your ceremonial law and here's yeah. your moral law okay and yeah. you've got a bunch of those mixed in with each other too they do um, they bleed so over for the Israelites, like, it was very clear, like, all of this, you follow all of this. And now, for the Christians, it's like some of this is is good, and we see direct application to it and all. 
then other stuff, it's like, okay, but what do I really need to do here? Or is there anything to do? Right. And so um, the conversation has been like, yes, Jesus fulfilled the law. So what do we do with it now? Right. Um, and so thinking through that and uh, just kind of understanding, like, as we were saying before before we started recording of, like, how um, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is good for teaching, rebuking, and... Um, Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. like, if, if we're looking at the law in that aspect, then while things like you should not have clothing of two different materials or something like that, yeah. well, well, that may be uh, a little difficult to kind of, um, you know, apply today because pretty much everything has multiple. Yeah. Multiple substances yeah. within it. Right. Um, but there's this idea of set apartness. Right. And if, um, and this is, this may be too vague, but it could also be a whole topic for another podcast. Right. Um, but this idea of being set apart, this be holy because I am holy. Like if we look so much like the world that we're not able to be distinguished between the world and what like Christ looks like. Right. Then I think we've gone too far on one side of the spectrum. But if we're so far on the other side of the spectrum that it's like, as though we hate the world or anything right. like that, then yeah. I think we've also missed the point. And so yeah. looking at the law through the lens of um, Christ having fulfilled it, and we're not gaining any righteousness by upholding the law, but the fruit of being a Christian looks like following much of the law. Yeah. And, um, I mean, what is the purpose of the law if all scriptures is from God, it's inspired, it's breathed out by God, and yeah. it's useful, then what's the purpose in um, civil law? What's the purpose in um, ceremonial law? And yeah. um, what was God's heart behind it? Why did God give it? Your Galatians gives us some, you know, the law, I think the New American Standard, Galatians 3.24, and I, I memorized this in New American Standard and have never been able to get it out of my head in the <laughs> NASB. The law was our tutor. Became the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ, and so there's yeah. this component of the law that is there to show us our need. We can't measure up to the righteous standard of God. So even in mixed fabric clothing, we can't even do that. Yeah, and so and so we're we're left with this unattainable standard and come falling onto Christ. But then we do have to wrestle with, well, what did what was God's intent behind that? What was he showing? And that's that's a good question. And that's, there's legitimate debate among Old Testament scholars and then even Christians. Uh, theonomy, <clears throat> the whole study of how is the law of any use today? Mm-hmm. And should it be applied, for instance, uh, when it comes to civil issues? Yeah. And the truth of the matter is an awful lot of Western civilizations' laws are built upon um, Mosaic law. Yeah. And so the the standard of right and wrong, the standard of uh, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, are the basis of Western civilization. Yeah. And so it it makes us ask the question, what's their role, right? Because in other parts of the world, where um, where uh, that's like say uh, Islamic Republic, where the Quran is the standard of law, um, it's it's built on a different set of values. Yeah. And so it makes us ask the question, what's the role of our book? And so that's a that's a great question, good dialogue. Some we got to keep asking, mm-hmm. and I'm convinced too that those are those are good 
um, sanctifying questions yeah. to teach us how to work together just as Christians yeah. and in our society, what's good for our cities. Cause we are, we're for the flourishing of our cities, right? That's good, brother. Listen, I'm going to leave it with that because that's pretty solid. And then we'll have to come back to pride month at some point <laughs> when pride month is over. And we'll talk about that. <laughs> so we're going to move on. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the main event of the evening. Yeah, baby. It's the main topic. Again, thanks to Bruce Buffer for coming in and recording that spot for us. He did it pro bono. What a guy. What a guy. What a guy. So today our main topic is the sacred-secular divide. Is it real uh, and or is it not real? Chris, one of the things i also have been having this discussion a lot lately because I hear it even in some of our best scholars— um, and and I don't and and I, I don't always want to jump on popular topics. I think there's a component of who we are because we're always in our group, uh, young men that we're discipling one another and we do life together. We're in our church together. We're just aware of our world and we ask questions. And sometimes we run up on things before it becomes a trend. Yeah. And I think this is one that's probably going to be a trend where this is debated. And the whole idea of sacred versus secular. Again, some of our most uh, accomplished scholars in our denomination and uh, other people use that language yeah. um, eschatologically depending on where you fall and how you see human history's conclusion may determine how you fall with that but the sacred secular language that is used by Christians bothers me and the reason it bothers me is because of creation yeah Genesis 1 and 2 tells us God created everything we firmly as Bible-believing Christians believe there's nothing in the universe, and we believe the whole universe is created by God. So everything we see has been created from nothing by the triune God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he said it was good. It was good. Sin was introduced in Genesis 3, and, and the day you eat of it, you will die. So the curse of sin is introduced. So does the curse of sin now make certain things innately evil? Or does the curse of sin just tarnish what is innately good? And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I think it's the second option. Yeah. I, I do not believe there is a sacred secular divide. And so, Chris, tell me what you think and tell me why you think this. I concur. Doctor, I concur. Um <laughs> I would like to have the word. I'd like to have the letters that make me doctor, but unfortunately, <laughs> you got master. I do. Um, that, that's that a good. Just, that's that a good title. But be weird. I'm not calling you that, Mitch. That would be really weird. Um, <laughs> so I definitely believe that, uh, like, that the effect of sin has, like, what's the word you used? Tarnished. Yeah. Tarnished God's perfect creation. Um, I think, I think any Christian would agree with that. Um, and, but what was key was where you said, did sin make th- things innately evil or sinful? Right. Um, and that's definitely, definitely a difficult thing to discuss, I think in some ways. Um, but, but I believe that, that, just as you said, it is the latter, um, and that things are tarnished by sin, uh, obviously, but that 
in God's creation, all things were good, and in creating humanity um, to then do things to his glory, but then also to create things to his glory. Like, that is good and sacred too, but we can we can twist that as right. well. Um, so I think about music. I love music. been involved in music and groups like that for years. Right. Um, uh, drum, drums is my number one instrument. Like that's the first thing I learned and played the longest. Um, but I learned from seventies and eighties rock. Um, and there's a lot of not sacred (laughs) in some of that music. Um, um, regardless of good songs like stairway to heaven. Um, right. Right. Like it's just, right. There's things that are not good in there, but I was able to learn how to play drums well and now yeah. take that and right. have been able to use it to right. um, work with church bands and things right. like that. Well, sound is not evil. Language is not evil. Yeah. Um, language can be used to glorify God. You know, like we learn in the Bible that uh, um, there are words that are deadly and there are words that are full of life. Yeah. But language is not evil. How language is used can be used for evil, but it does not make language innately evil. Sound is not innately evil. Sound manipulated can be very glorifying to God, and it can be very devastating, depending on how it's used and for what purpose. But there is no innate evil to sound and its coordination in music or language, Mm -hmm. right? So... So the whole idea of of music being secular based upon its content speaks to something, uh, saying that secular speaks to its nature as opposed to its use. And I think that's a healthy distinction here, nature versus use. So would you agree with that? Yes, because, like, let me think. A good, okay, so there's these things my mom makes. They're like peanut butter, chocolate Ritz cracker things. Yeah, it's glorious. I think it's going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Um, Joseph Smith and I figured that out. Uh, but uh, so I think like that's a great thing, right? Now, and and it can be abused. Like the other day, I should have maybe only eaten two, <laughs> whereas I ate six or right. seven or right. more than that. Right. Um, but like <laughs> the 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 food itself was not evil. Yeah, it's it glorious. was the 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 abuse of that or the right. um the the use of it outside of moderation, right? Or uh, without moderation, and right. so um I think we can see that in like all of creation, like even right. like in the garden, for example, God gives them a plethora of choices of food and. Um, vegetation to to eat from, be right. sustained and flourish with right. that. And he says, "Don't eat from here." Mm-hmm. And it's not that it was, it was bad, but the the instruction, the right. the command from God was, "Don't eat from here." Right? Like, I'll, you don't need it. Right? I'll sustain you. Right? And out 
of the manipulation of Satan. Right. Some laziness on Adam's part. And just like they, they fell to it and they took of what they didn't need. And, right. And so, right. Thus entering sin. Thus entering creation. sin. Right. And so, um, I don't know. I think it's, there is a fine line there, but I think what you said, like the distinction between, like, it's almost like nature versus nurture in a way, but slightly different, like a slightly sure. shifted focus. But like the the nature of it is not evil, but the way we utilize it definitely can be. It definitely can be. I think one of the one of the things I notice in some of the dialogue uh, that I hear from some of our great scholars um, has a root, um, and I think an eschatology that sees a a dividing line between. Um, things that belong to Satan and things that belong to God. Yeah. And I think, uh, although they would disagree that Satan owns anything because he's not creator, he's creature. Yeah. Um, I think the language implies that there's certain things that innately belong to Satan and are on Satan's side. In Genesis one and two, we see everything belongs to God yeah. and things have fallen into sin. But what we also see in the Bible, pretty Colossians one, 15 to 20, you see revelation 19, 20, 21 and 22, all of creation is being redeemed. And in Colossians 1 is super clear that all of these, the whole of created order is being redeemed and put under the feet of Christ. Yeah. Now, if that's what God is doing in his kingdom, he's, his means, I think we can determine from the Bible also, would be the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus' reign, his salvation, but also his people sent into the world to make disciples of all nations and to be, and, and we teach this, we teach this in our church, we teach Genesis 1, 26 to 28, the creation or the cultural mandate that mm-hmm. our original Great Commission is the basis of the Great Commission, which is to disciple the nations and subdue all of created order because it's not going away, it's being redeemed. And yeah. if it's being redeemed, then it is innately good and God is rescuing it from the curse of sin, which means there's really no secular, there's just wrecked from the curse that we are to fix. Yeah. When Jesus sent the disciples out, he told them to heal and then preach, say to them, the kingdom of God has come near. So the whole idea that Jesus intended them to fix something that was broken mm-hmm. and at the same time preach the good news of the kingdom implies to me that all things are good, broken by sin, and Jesus intends to absolutely make them good again. Which to me, and again, this is debatable, so I want to confess this is debatable, erases the line between sacred and secular. And it tells me everything is sacred and being repaired by the gospel. Now, what am I missing there? Or am I missing something? Or, and this is a different topic, and it's not a different topic, it's a different part of the conversation. Have Do we just adopt language because we hear it? And we incorporate it into our vocabulary and assume it being real? As opposed to asking the question, is that real? Crickets. See, here's what I think. I think we assume language. Growing up where I grew up, I heard things uh, in Christian subculture. And because they came from people I respected or older people, I just assumed their reality. It's almost like we just adopt that. Yes. Start rolling with it, using it, because it's like, oh, that's good. Like, yeah. I like that guy. Absolutely, like like for instance, in our world that where where most of us would 
have a robust view of the sovereignty of God. There are people in that camp who are nuts with it. They're cage stage. They they see no room for human responsibility. Yeah. They're basically fatalists. Yeah. And they use the language of sovereignty, and what they mean by sovereignty is fatalist, not providential. Yeah. And and there's no person who believes their Bible can be a fatalist. Yeah. Or that my decisions aren't freely coming from sin Mm -hmm. (laughs) or freely coming from righteousness. And and there's no room for paradox. Um, And and so it's because they have heard or assumed language from a word as opposed to digging in. Is that true? I think people hear sacred secular. They'll hear it from Al Mohler, who I deeply respect. And dude would have me in the corner sucking my thumb intellectually in like five minutes. So I don't want to debate Al Mohler on that because he may may change my mind. But just because Al Mohler says it doesn't make it factual. And and just because you and I don't have a PhD doesn't mean we're dumb. And so part of the task of Christians is to listen to the Holy Spirit, read their Bible, be discerning, Mm -hmm. and in fellowship, grow together and question, is that really true? And this is one of those we need to ask, is that really true? Because if there's a sacred and secular divide, then your job is kind of irrelevant. Yeah. You need to get into the sacred world, leave your job and become a priest, become yeah. a pastor, become a something or whatever. But if there is no sacred, secular divide, then geez, man, vocations matter, right? Yes. It matters what you did in student housing and residence life. It, it yeah. matters um, what people do in this building in child welfare services. It matters what... What Lexi does at the front desk when she greets people, it matters what happens when we do fingerprinting services. Those jobs matter because we're engaging people and we are seeking the redemption of all things and brought under the rule of Christ. And I see all of that as sacred. Yeah. Okay. Soapbox, I'll take it away. <laughs> you you have in front of you something really important. You have some John frame. I do have some John frame. What you got there? I don't know if I could word it better than than John Frame, though. You can just um, read it if you want to, because we're footnote, we'll verbal footnote it, John Frame. Verbal footnote, John Frame, systematic theology, 10 out of 10 recommended, maybe even 11 out of 10 <laughs> recommended. 11 out of 10, I agree. So where he comes to talking about this is uh, talking about Martin Luther um, and his distinction between law and gospel and then his kind of idea of uh like the two kingdoms um the kingdom of law and the kingdom of gospel and separating that like the idea of church and state um i think even so talking about words how they're defined what we assume they mean and um, then how we use those and all of that. Like even when it comes to the word like reformed, in a sense, if you're a Protestant, you're reformed because it was a part of the Reformation. The Reformation right. um, but nowadays, like you, you could ask anybody on any side of the discussion, what does reformed mean? And you're likely going to get a, a different answer every single time. Right. And, even people in the same camp or tribe, whatever they want to say, like they're still going to differ even in and of themselves. That's right. Um, anyway, so like I think when it comes to secular and sacred, we even like we have such a broad 
we're referring to such a broad conversation that sometimes it's difficult. So John Frame here is talking about like church and state and that sort of thing, right? Um, kind of as as Luther did as well. So I'm trying to find a part so I'm not reading two whole pages from systematic theology. Um, <laughs> right. He says here. It should be evident from our study so far that the Scripture speaks of only one kingdom of God. He's talking about the sacred. That kingdom is the historical program of God coming to overcome his enemies, to redeem his people, and to bring his lordship to bear on all areas of created reality. And so we see that in like Romans 8.22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Jump down to Ephesians 1.22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, where all things are subjected under him, the son himself, and all things who, I misquoted that, subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all and all. And this idea of him redeeming his creation, like right. it's, like sin has infected it. And now it needs to be redeemed. And so John Frame continues on saying, There is no secular kingdom, no kingdom ruled only by natural law and not by scripture. Uh. So all people, all institutions, all spheres of human life have a responsibility to hear God's word, to respond to it obediently, and to accept the renewal of God's grace. Wow. And it goes on talking about Cain and Abel, talking about crime, and um, right, just discussing how... Like in the the definition of the word sacred or the definition of the word secular, technically there is no secular, even if it's not sacred in the eyes of God. Right. It's sacred in the eyes of a religion or a right idol, a false god or something. Like we right. all we all worship something. I don't remember who kind of became famous coining that. Like right. we're all worshippers of something. Right. Um probably paul or another apostle um but maybe calvin our hearts are idle factories yeah maybe calvin i think you said that and so regardless like even just talking simply about that like i think we can narrow it down to like there there is no secular now it's a matter of like if, if all things are are sacred in that sense right like then what is sacred in regards to God, right, and His holiness, right, and what lines up with Scripture, and so then we can get like the semantics of all of that. I think is maybe where some people divide. Sure, but I think the the issue at hand that we see is like when it comes to God's creation. That's right. It is all sacred. That's right. But what we come around to is now: How are we using that? How we're using it, like, right? When it comes to even our disposal disposal of trash, right? How how do we do that to the glory of God, right? And the nurturing of His creation, yeah. Because if there's secular, it doesn't matter. Just throw it in the ocean, yeah. The matter's going to burn it'll, anyway. Yeah, it'll all get burned up and in the end. The crazy thing is, often people will use the language Peter uses there about the elements being burned with fervent heat. What's interesting is Peter is the only one who uses that language. Everywhere else in the, in the scriptures, from Isaiah all the way to Revelation twenty one and twenty two, is the transformation of created order yeah. back into its Eden state. You know, the language of Revelation twenty one, the imagery, the apocalyptic imagery of 
heaven and earth fly away and new heaven and a new earth. Um, Revelation 22, the water coming out, the water of life that runs for the healing and, and the leaves of those trees for the healing of the nations. And so the question, we shouldn't assume that it's all going to burn on one verse. We should ask the question, what is Peter's intent with that language in light of everything else? I mean, that's just good exposition. That's good exegesis of Scripture. You never build the whole doctrine on one verse. You build a doctrine on a preponderance of evidence. And the whole of the Bible gives us a picture of God renewing creation, renewing Eden, and restoring Eden as opposed to burning up what is. Uh, And so the question is, why is Peter using that language, which which is a different topic, but... But the idea that it's just going to be burned up is is not something we should assume yep. in light of everything else. And so what is my role in seeing its restoration? And so that's that's the big question because that, that then assumes that it's worth restoring yeah. and that I have a have a role in it. Okay, we need to wrap up. And so uh Chris, give me give me a one minute summary for you, and then I'll give a one minute summary and we will get ready okay. to wrap. I'm gonna quote a commentator that talks about this. Uh, He says, In other words, all peoples, cultures, and authorities will one day be brought completely under the lordship of Jesus Christ. See that in Philippians, Isaiah. Christians engaging the culture should do so with that view, with a view to that end. Mm. And then thinking about that, like Colossians 3, 23 through 24, where he's like, do all things, like work, work heartily as for the Lord. Right. Um, not not for men, and knowing that there's like eternal significance to it. That's right. Um, and so thinking about that, and then even as we uh, spoke earlier about walking in the spirit, like walking in the spirit consistently will blur the lines between sacred and secular. Yeah. Because as we walk in step with the spirit, as we seek to be obedient to the Lord's will, and like as seen in His Word then what we do like will be sacred in that that's sense. Right. Um and so that's good. We go forth, we act and create to the glory of God. Amen. Uh I would encourage anybody listening to check out Abraham Kuyper. Um he is a good example of I think erasing that line in his actions as a prime minister of the Netherlands. Um Kuiper founded the Free University of Amsterdam, which no longer really reflects his worldview. Uh, but it would be worth reading the Kuiperian, uh, Kuiperian Contours of the Kuiperian Tradition is a great book. I would encourage people getting their hands on and reading. Abraham Kuiper is the one who wrote, There is no place in creation of which the Lord Jesus doesn't say, Mine. Hmm. And, uh, and Kuiper, being a Dutch Reformed elder, turned to prime minister to founder of a university, believing that the kingdom of God sits over everything and the kingdom of God should restore everything. Man fought hard to do that at every level, government, home, education. Um, and so I would encourage folks to read some Kuiper and and see that this is beyond a pipe dream. This is the kingdom of God worked out, that, uh, that there is no divide. All things belong to Jesus. He is restoring them, and we have a role in it. And he is taking what is broken and restoring it. It's not innately secular. Yeah. I think that demeans creation. And I think it draws a false line between what's God's and what's Satan. Satan owns nothing. Mm-hmm. It's all Jesus' property. And he is restoring it to the Edenic beauty that he created it in. And so, gosh, guys, thank you so much for listening. We are absolutely 
grateful for you listening and being part of Theology in the Dirt. If you have any questions you'd like to ask us, you could email them to theologyinthedirt at gmail.com and we'll get to them. We're a little behind. We got one coming up next week and uh, we'll be addressing that. So we look forward to being with you next time. Chris, thanks for time, brother. Yes, sir. Thank you. You guys have a great day. Out.